Good evening, Damien. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. And you've come to talk about the book that you've written, which is the third of a trilogy. But first of all, Damien, tell me about yourself, how you got into writing, please. Yeah, so I, I grew up with a of such a wonderful love of reading. And, and that was the main thing which got me into writing. So growing up, I loved Roald Dahl, many of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Matilda. It wasn't long before I got onto things like Harry Potter, Philip Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy, and Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Often, often young people, my friends, my, you know, might be that they're playing outside. I would be really comfortable just curling up in a corner reading a book and with such a strong imagination. And for as long as I've been, I can remember, I've been writing stories. So I've really, really enjoyed the Toy Story films. When they first came out, I wrote a few stories about Buzz Lightyear. When I was about 12, I had decided that waiting three years for the fifth Harry Potter book was too long. So I wrote my own Harry Potter book. So it's it's been a dream of mine for for a very, very long time. But the sad thing was that I, I mentioned this to I sold this to an adult and I said, oh, when I grew up, I would love to write books. And they said to me, well, that's going to be very difficult, very hard to succeed as as an author. And I thought to myself at that young age, "Okay, perhaps I shouldn't try. Perhaps I I shouldn't do it. And I went on and focused on my exams and things. And then in my early 20s, I started thinking about that childhood dream again. And And as an adult, I looked back and I thought, well, why not? Why not give it a try? And so in 2011, I began writing my very own epic fantasy trilogy, which has now gone so far and become a dream come true. Wonderful. And did you grow up with books around you? Yes. I think also one of the main inspirations for me was my dad, who used to tell us stories every, whenever he could. And his stories were so popular, sometimes he would tell us them say on an aeroplane and the people around us would all stop what they were doing to listen to his stories so I think he was a big inspiration for my imagination and it was always stories around and and we loved stories as a family. Right so you said us so I presume you have siblings are they book readers as you are? Yeah so I ha- I'm believe it or not I'm on one of seven children uh-huh. which is quite a lot so originally my mum and dad had the four of us and then it, it grew from there and they've they've all been reading the books. My younger brother has finished all three of them now, and he's he loved them. And it's been very popular in the family, although they might be slightly biased. Oh uh, yeah. And but, did they did they write as well, or is that just down to you? So some of them have had a go at writing, inspired by by me and my my journey. But mostly it's me and the family. I'm I'm the writer in the family. Okay. So you said you wrote a, a Harry Potter book. What happened to that one? I think I was about 12 or so at the time and it must be tucked away somewhere. I bet it's in my mum's attic or something. Um, But the funny thing is that um, in the books, there's a few different characters who die and and different things that happen. And I actually, some of my things that I wrote ended up happening in J.K. Rowling's books. And so my predictions were true, if you think about it. So that, that that felt quite good as I was seeing the way that I imagined the stories happening as the years went on. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, you haven't got the money that she has now. (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) Okay. well, look, tell me about your trilogy and um, how it all started and what's it all about. Mm. So as I I mentioned, it was all back in 2011. So I um, I was I was living in Warwickshire at the time and a little housing estate. 
And so one Sunday afternoon, you know, all of this stuff was going around in my head about wanting to write books and could I do it? And I decided that there was so much going on, I just got out for a walk. And as I was walking, I had a, a bolt of inspiration, which was a fantasy world that started unfolding in my mind as I was making this walk. And, and by the end, I had many of the main characters, quite a few of the main events of the now the Halfmark Chronicles. And I, I got home and I started typing it all up on the computer. And as I was writing, I was more and more excited about these ideas until I came to the very end of the third book. I had the ending of the third book from day one. When I was finished, I sent all this to a friend of mine and she said, this is amazing. This is really, really good. You need to put more time into this. So November the 14th, 2011, on a train up to Manchester, I wrote the very first scene of the first book, which is now called Out of Atlas. And over the last 10 years, uh, these this three, three books have taken shape into a epic uh, narrative with many different characters, great adventures, young people right at the heart of it. And through all of the different books, great meaning and different subjects that the characters are looking at, good versus evil, love, a great deal of, of humour um, and different trials and events that the characters are going through, really testing them and, and pushing them. And it's been, it's been wonderful to see how well they've been received. Right now, I think the first one is almost got 85 star reviews on, on Amazon. And I've been, uh, there's, there was over the summer, there was someone who got in touch wanting to make audio books all three of the books brilliant uh, yeah very exciting and i've also been invited to speak at something called fantasy con um which is one of the biggest fantasy conventions for, for fantasy literature in the country uh, so that's happening next weekend excellent well you've told me about the chili but I, but can you tell me a little bit more about the story yes so the main character of the first book is called fred banks we meet him as a as a 16 year old uh, going to school and what's a little bit different about his world is he lives in a city called Atlas. And it's interesting that the first book is coming out now because we've all been dealing with, with lockdown and all having slightly different experiences. And the city of Atlas, for different reasons in their past, have put a wall all around their city. So they have no contact with the outside world. And as far as Fred can work out, he's the only one who has questions about what might be outside. And this, uh, these questions that he has will lead him onto an epic adventure where he'll set off into the great unknown on an incredible adventure to really claim his soul. And so the first book is about him finding his place in the world and, uh, and claiming what's called the light spark in, in that story and many different characters, all the adventures that he has, uh, some great people, wonderful characters and some pretty nasty ones too. And then book two and three, take that platform of this brand new world that's been introduced, the world of, of Receiver. And so uh, we take it to a Lord of the Rings level of scale with great big battles, good versus evil, and, and young people at the heart of it trying to find their way through it all. When did this all come to you? I mean, you said that you thought about this for quite a while and you had the, the ending at the very beginning. Mm. So you knew how it was going to end. So were you at any time thinking, am I going to be able to do all this? Or did you think, right... Pen in hand and off you went. Yeah, so at the very beginning, I had almost, it was almost like I had pieces of a puzzle that I was putting together. So I didn't start writing chronologically. I wrote, uh, the first thing that I ever wrote, I think is now in about chapter seven or eight. And then I wrote something that would be towards the end of the second book. And I was 
putting together these pieces of a puzzle, parts of book one, two, three, all over the place. And then eventually I had quite a clear picture of what book one would look like. So I started writing that all the way through. And by the end of the time writing book one, I had a really clear plan for book two. So I started on book two and then and then book three. Um, but then, of course, there's editing. And so the, all the different books went through different drafts. And so at one point, I did a training course with a, one of the big publishers in the country, Faber and Faber. That was very, very helpful for pushing my writing further, taking it to the next level. And it was, but I was, I, and it was, I was just working on it in private in a way until about 2015, where I decided to start trying to get it published, which was a, a whole story on its own and quite a long journey. And did you get it published or were you self-publishing? I have a publisher. Mm-hmm. So uh, 2015, I mentioned I, I started sending it. I started sending it off to literary agents, yeah. um, which to those who are uh, looking to get books published, effectively they're the gatekeepers to the publishing industry. And if you can get a, a literary agent, then then they will push your book to publishers. But the challenge is that many literary agents will hear from hundreds of people every month and only take on a handful of people a year. So, so first, so your book nearly, really, really needs to be exceptionally good if you're to succeed. So, over the last uh, between the years 2015 2020, I had some some near misses and uh, some full manuscript requests. But of course, there's no there's the, the difference between a near miss and actually being there is is everything. It's nice to have a near miss, but you need to actually get it. Yes. Uh, so in 2020, we all had l- lockdown. And for me, um, a big part of lockdown was I was finishing off the editing of the books and uh, extra time for that. So I came to a point where I have had solid book quality, uh, finished books, all three of the books. And I thought to myself, well, I'm still getting rejections from agents. So what do I do now? And I had a bit of a strange idea. So I have a, a very good friend of mine here in Huntingdon who has two boys. And I said to her, how would you feel about printing off the first few chapters of my first book and giving them to your eldest son, but take off my name? And so he would just have these chapters and he could tell me honestly if, if it was good or not. And she said, yes, that's fine. Happy to do that. And uh, a few days later, she got in touch and she said, you will never guess what has happened. My son has not only read these opening chapters, but in 24 hours, he has read the entire book. He's been running around the house, completely amazed. He's been breaking into my dad's, into his dad's study while he's in the middle of Zoom meetings to shout about the books, uh, which is quite a big deal because he works for AstraZeneca and can't deal with these distractions. And, um, and whenever she asked him what he thought, he would shout at the top of his lungs. It was amazing, epic. And so, so that to me was pretty encouraging. Very much so. How much was the child? How old, I should say? He's, uh, he, he would have been nine or ten years old at the time. And uh, now, now he's read all three books and he likes them all equally. He liked them all just the same. And when the first book was properly published, he again got through it in 24 hours. So at the time, he was really excited about the book, but he didn't know he'd written it. So we set up a Zoom meeting and I said to him, well, would you like to know who wrote the book? And, uh, and we revealed that it was me. And he refused to believe that I had written the book. There was no way I had written a book that good. And it took quite some convincing. He was, he was asking me all these questions to try and trick me out. So we got this video and sent it to a publisher. And it was quite quick, quite quickly after that, the publisher said, 
we're going to take on all three books, publish them, and that's uh, that's the dream come true in a way. Amazing. And is the um, other books geared towards that age range? Yeah, so I, whenever I was writing books, I was thinking about myself when I was first reading Philip Pullman's Dark Materials trilogy. Right. So uh, so right now I have children in Hinchinbrook School uh, who are reading it and they're, they're loving it. Um, in fact, one of them who had read Lord of the Rings earlier in the year came to me and said that she preferred my books, which was exciting. But also I find that people who are much older enjoy them too, because there's a human emotion there's quite a lot of emotion that's running through the books quite a lot of meat and the themes we can grapple onto so there's a friend of mine who's a theatre critic in London who himself would never normally enjoy fantasy but he said he read it and there was not just something about it which really made him it resonated with him and he enjoyed it and it kept him turning pages so I've got people of all ages who seem to be enjoying the books Lovely. Well, I remember re- reading Lord of the Rings a long, 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 long time ago. Normally, I don't like fantasy fiction, I must admit, but I did love Lord of the Rings. Mm. So I shall, but I shall uh, read your first book, um, Damien, and I Wonderful. shall then uh, pass it on to my granddaughter and see if she enjoys it as well. Fantastic. So you, we, we know we can get it on Amazon, or yes. three on Amazon, and... What's next? So, um, as you just mentioned, Amazon is the place to go. My name, Damien Hine, and the name of the series, The Halfmark Chronicles. The Half? The Half? Halfmark Chronicles. Mark. Halfmark, yes. So, H-E-A-R-T-H-M-A-R-K, Chronicles. Right. And the first book, Outer Atlas. So, I'm, I'm soon to start working on a brand new book series, which I can't say too much about. All I can say is that it will be mixing some elements of fantasy with the real world. So you can imagine what sort of things would happen if, say, a dragon turned up in the centre of Huntingdon, what that would be like. That might be something that could happen in, in my next book. Have the publisher come to you and given you an advance for your next book? Uh, not yet. We're still in early conversations uh, about okay. how it's all shaping up. Do you eventually want to be a full-time writer and not have to rely on having to uh, go to I work? Think, I think I I would resist being completely removed from being around people. I do I do enjoy being able to do both. So if I could do 50-50, um, something like that, or some uh, balance in the middle, that, that would be really good. Right. OK. Well, we have book club at um, Huntington Community Radio. And um, there's uh, four of us that review. So, and we all each choose a book. So when it comes around to me, Damien, I shall, uh, I shall choose a book, okay? Wonderful, that sounds great. Okay, all right. Well, that's absolutely super. Thank you so much for talking to me this evening. And all the very best for the trilogy. And I look forward to reading it and um, we'll be putting my review on Amazon and also telling all our viewers. Fantastic, it was really nice to talk to you. Take care now, Damien. Okay, bye-bye, bye-bye. Hello, my name is Damien Hine. I'm the author of The Halfmark Chronicles, and I have the pleasure of now reading to you the first two chapters of my debut novel, Out of Atlas. So here we are with chapter one, The Walls of Atlas. Fred Banks straightened his waistcoat and jacket, flung open the front door, and was at once confronted with a grim view of the walls of Atlas. It was a short walk to his school, St Rolfian's, and nowadays he took to spending the majority of it with his hands deep in his pockets to guard against pickpockets and staring up at the walls. We didn't always have them, 
his uncle once told him. Once we were peaceful, happy, free. Until, yes, the marauders. The marauders. He'd heard enough whispers of them through his childhood. Before knowing the meaning of the word, he knew to shiver at its mentioning. No one knows where they came from, nor why. Just that they came carrying swords, burning and pillaging wherever they went. One by one, the free cities fell, and Atlas would have followed suit had we not had the wherewithal to build walls to hide behind. Fred couldn't count the times Uncle Paul had told the story, nor fathom why with such frequency. Once was enough, right? The effect was a deep shudder whenever he saw the walls. They towered to block out the sky, no thought of artistry given them, save the legion of gargoyles, which popped both sides, long spears in their hands, and mouths wide enough to swallow the world. They terrified the marauders, Uncle Paul loved to say. Those stone scarecrows project visions into their wild minds. And thank goodness they're just stone, Fred thought, pulling his blazer tighter at the sight of one. Hey, watch where you're going, yelled a man in a top hat, snapping the reins of a horse-drawn carriage. Fred ripped his eyes from the walls. He'd wandered into the middle of a cobbled street. Oh, sorry, I... Too late. With a hya, the horses were charging off again. Papers, get your papers. On the corner of Herald's Way, a boy in a flat cap and drab cotton shirt was forcing newspapers on passers-by with such a fever... Fred wondered if they might be burning his own hands. Meanwhile, a tide of bowler hats and petticoats were passing him by. Fred frowned. The boy, probably just a few years older, had been born here, and, if it was anything like the rest of Atlas, would die here too. This smoky city was a beehive of markets and dusty streets, a scrum of hectic people living hectic lives, and none of them, to his knowledge, had ever questioned the walls about them. Taking the last turn, he reached the black, wrought iron gates of St Rolfians, a gas-lit lantern adorning the head of each one. Damn, why did parents have to be seeing their kids off today? He locked his gaze on a gap in the crowd and elbowed his way through. Not today. He wouldn't think of them today. Ruth met him on the other side with a cheery, Hello! Morning, he mumbled. She glanced at the crowd behind him, and her eyebrows folded in understanding. He loved her for that. Ready for a bit of history? Sure. Moments later, Mr Beverins clapped his hands together and strode before the class. He was a slim figure in a brown tweed suit, scarlet tie and polished burgundy shoes. Spindly little glasses sat on the end of his nose, while a centimetre of white hair covered his head, with a thin strip curving round his jaw. You have twenty, twenty minutes, he said. Three centuries past, Ducard Matra theorised that emptiness is the natural human state. To what extent do you agree or disagree? Pens rummaged their way out of bags, dove into inkwells and zoomed across pages. Mr Beverins, the old chestnut, had been teaching history at St Rolfians for well over 35 years, and, as far as Fred could work out, had always been old. 
The two exchanged a smile, and Fred returned to his paper. His first lonely paragraph was staring up at him, begging for company. Two rows down, Ruth's pen was running relays from left to right. He put down his pen and gazed around the room. Ah, Mr Beverins's classroom. Most professors jammed their room rooms with a full encyclopedia of trinkets confiscated from students, shelves of large tomes set to fall apart under the weight of their collective dust. Not so with Mr Beverins. His room breathed and dreamt history. It smelt of the stuff. Paintings and tapestries arrayed the walls. Even a full-length sword hung above his desk. One particular painting drew his gaze. Hmm. Why had he never noticed it before? In its centre was a gigantic man in a golden suit of armour. Roaring out of the chest plate was an enormous lion, and hair seemed to be erupting from every part of him, each strand of the same fiery colour as his hazel gold eyes. So shone this figure that all about seemed dim, save the golden sword which struck at the burnt sky above his head. Fred's lips parted. Was it him? Or was there more than brushwork there? It was the eyes that did it. He sensed they were taking him in, reeling him to a trembling depth. He struggled to find the word. Profound? Majestic? He knew the, he knew the right one as soon as it passed through his mind. Kingly. But who was he? He'd never seen anyone in Atlas like that. Could he be one of the marauders? No, Mr Beverins would never celebrate one of them. Yet, if he wasn't from Atlas, or beyond the walls, then where could he be from? Who was he? So captivated was he, so engrossed, that he never noticed what Mr Beverins was doing. The professors at Quibblue Eyes were watching him in turn, and that look, what was it? Not judgement, more of a probing attentiveness. The wrinkles along his cheeks stretched tight at the presence of a smile. Then he clapped his hands once more and brought the class back to attention. Fred didn't glance at the walls for the rest of the day. The kingly warrior was emblazoned on the back of his eyelids. Who was he? Where did he come from? And the question which bugged him most of all, how had Mr Beverance come by a picture of him? Back home, he speared seasoned mutton onto his fork, smeared it with some mashed potato and shoved it into his mouth. Down the table, his uncle was sat in silence. Dull grey eyes followed a pipe up to his mouth. There's some jobs coming up at the bank, Paul said with a cough. Mrs Higgs is looking for fresh blood. That's, um... He had to pluck himself from his thoughts. Sorry, what? Jobs, son. I'm trying to help your future, unless you prefer sweeping the chimneys or burrowing down in the mines. Fred sneered, raising his eyebrows. Son, don't kid yourself. Yeah, good. Since we're talking, I have a question. Been thinking about it all day. Oh? Something about work, banking, finally becoming normal and fitting in, perhaps? Is there anything beyond the walls other than the marauders? Well... Not really. Any survivors from the free cities would have been wiped out centuries ago. Then, have you ever seen one of the marauders? What? Uncle Paul choked on his potato and banged his chest hard. 
Why would you ask me that? Fearsome beasts bent on violence to their last breath. Bloody monsters, the lot of them. Yeah, but have you actually ever seen one? I can happily say I have not. Do you know anyone who has? No, of course. These are strange questions, Fred. We are safe here in Atlas. Our walls protect us. Why I would want to see one of those dogs is quite beyond me. What's gotten into you? I'm just thinking. Never mind. Yes, well, quite enough of that. I was trying to tell you about Mrs Higgs. Please do try to pay attention. Fred smirked and then mmmed and nodded through the rest of the conversation. Something wasn't adding up. The very reason the walls existed was to protect them from the, from the marauders. Yet his uncle had never seen one. No one he knew had. He saw Mr Beverins's aqua blue eyes. So old. Could he have seen them? What if no one alive had seen a marauder? Try as he did to find some sleep. He kept seeing the walls and the kingly warrior of Mr Beverins's painting. Perhaps not being a marauder... He'd led strikes to beat them back. But a whisper in his heart told him the man wasn't from Atlas, or the free cities at all. So what then? He followed the whispering thread to its source, and another image emerged. The kingly warrior hailed from a place without borders or boundaries, and, from his hazel gold eyes to his roaring chestplate, his life pulsed with a freedom that denied the desire for them. Before it could seek confirmation, his heart cried, yes, and his, ho- and his bones ached to know that place. He shivered at its power. Where was this coming from? It made no sense. Yet the more he tossed and turned, the more it plagued him. And out of that image span a wild idea, a daring plan. No way, he thought, but heck, I just might. In the middle of the night... Once Uncle Paul's thundering snores reverberated throughout the house, he leapt out of bed and flung open the front door. Oh, Fred, he muttered, what on earth are you doing? Yep, he nodded and was sure of it. He was going to sneak out, climb the walls and see for himself what lay beyond. Chapter 2 What Lay Beyond Atlas changed at night. Under a pale sliver of moonlight, the cobbled streets were dotted with lamps lit by gas distilled from coal. It wasn't hard keeping out of the few feet of light they threw. Still, far-off sounds felt as close as his skin. A cat hissing and scrambling away. The last drunk laugh leaving the whippersnapper. With each step, the gargoyles loomed closer. Shadows exaggerated their features, casting them as ghastly watchers, and he half expected one to crank its stone head round, freeze him with its dead eyes, and unleash a blood-curdling cry. A mocking tremor ran down his spine. Oh, Fred, Fred, what are you doing? it said. Finding the truth, he replied. After 25 minutes, he found himself at the foot of the north wall. He lowered his hood, and squinted about. The moon cast a glow over the ropes and ladders soldiers once used to reach the top. He tracked one of them up, 30 feet to a wooden platform, where another ladder waited. Ladder, platform, ladder, platform, all the way to the top. 
Seems easy enough, he muttered. <laughs> Bet it won't be. He approached, slid a finger along one of the rungs, and it came away carrying dust. His brow creased. Not used in some time. Makes sense. Better test it. Seizing the rails on either side, he put his full weight on the lowest rung. Immediately, it sagged with a low moan. Doesn't sound good. The next moment, it cracked, and wood chips sprayed up in his face. Damn! If someone heard that, he whipped round. The dusty streets zipped south, zigzagging in and out of each other, yet nothing stirred, and no one came calling after him. Right then, back to it. The question, though, was how? How on earth could he do it? The wall leapt 150 feet to the moon. If the other ladders proved as, as reliable as this one, he'd be better off using a glass pickaxe. He peered east along the wall and grinned. Ha <laughs> Oh yeah. When the mines came within the city limits, they constructed a mechanism for hoisting teams of men and rocks in bulk to the top. A pair of timber rafts counterbalanced each other to form a lift, controlled from the bottom. Thus, as one ascended, the other descended. By conventional means, it took a small crew to run safely. Well, conventional means. He snatched an axe from the base of the wall, along with a pair of dusty, discarded rawhide gloves, and stomped off. The nearest raft sat flat against the earth. Ropes rose from each corner and melded into one strand as thick as his arm that climbed to a colossal pulley at the top. Lifting his coat high, he froze in his tracks. The fibres of his shirt stuck to the chilled sweat sliding down his back. This is crazy, he muttered. Totally crazy. It was also this or the ladders, and a fat lot of use they were. Clinging to the axe, he mounted the raft, shimmied up one of the ropes and steadied himself against the master rope. The rawhide gloves gave him tremendous grip. He leant back and gazed up. A cold drop of sweat dripped from his chin. Man, it was far. Am I really doing this? People in Atlas talked about prayer sometimes. And, looking up, he wished there was someone to pray too. Here goes. Ensuring he had a good grip, he leant back and struck the rope with the axe. The collision sent ripples to the moon and a bunch of threads split. Again, more threads split and another ripple to the moon. Once more, that did it. The rest of the threads started snapping, great fissures rocketing up. His eyes bulged. Oh, crap! The, the word was ripped from his lips as the rope shot up like a firework. He clung for dear life, begging his arms to not be ripped clean off. Ladders and platforms scorched past. The other raft came plunging down like a guillotine, missing him by inches and taking his breath with it. Then the top was rushing to meet him. His throat clamped tight. The pulley looked even more immense from here. Just before the rope mangled him into it, he let go and went coursing into the air. For an instant, he sailed above the wall. He slowed, and it was him and the stars. No wind, no movement.